I too am fond of the holiday season for any number of reasons. Uh, I think mostly because of the promise of vacation time. And uh, I was able to calculate this morning that it's three more weeks until I get another week off. And so it's a pretty exciting season where, you know, you finish a great time of rest with family. And normally I'd come back from vacation and I'd almost be sort of depressed because, I don't know if you're like me, but at the end of vacation you're like, wow, I really don't feel like getting back on the treadmill. And so now knowing that I have uh, some more time with family uh, during the holidays, during Christmas in specific, uh, just gives me a sense of hope. Uh, today I, I was visiting with, and I let him know I was going to be using him as an example. I won't specifically mention him by name, but one of our Caltech students here at PRISM is experiencing in real life uh, the hope of the gospel. And what I mean by that is, is that uh, there is a season now, what is his first semester at Caltech coming to a conclusion and now he is saying, I'm going to actually get some time off. And because this has been the most intense three-month experience probably of his life, let alone his academic life, uh, now the promise of a, of a break between semesters ha- has taken on something really fortunate for him. And for all of us, we've experienced this at one time or another where you sense a, a genuine hope, like I can make it through these, these, the next couple of weeks because at the conclusion of that is a guaranteed time of rest. If you're exhausted, this is what the Scriptures are talking about when it speaks of a biblical hope. Uh, two, in 2009 at Caltech, they had a rash of suicides. Now, at, in particularly high-stress, high-achieving academic environments, this isn't uncommon But people lose hope, and sometimes they take their lives. When they think that there is no end to the current situation, that they're never going to get through this, that's when they lose a sense that I can hang on. I know from first experience the despair that a person can feel when they believe a situation will never improve. I've had that in work situations before, and it's been very discouraging. So, so I can sympathize and empathize that this leads some to end their lives, whether it's in 2009 in Caltech or last month here on the Colorado Street Bridge here in Pasadena, which has happened hundreds of times in the last century. People despair because they have no expectation that the future holds for them something better than what they have right now. This week, Advent centers on the longing of God's people for the coming Messiah. The Israelites longed for the fulfillment of God's promises, a deliverance from their 70-year exile in Babylon, and a a reestablishment of God's kingdom. And it was this promise of a future king, a future kingdom, that enabled them to endure seven decades of suffering. Most of us, I will point at myself, join me in my pathetic club if you must, can't endure seven hours of suffering. It's just like, oh, this is, I'm so burdened. My cable went out in the middle of a football game, and I thought I was going to lose my head, you know? And so I, I think in our culture, particularly the westernized, affluent culture, it's really easy to get fussy about virtually nothing. And some of these people... If they lived 70 years, 
They lived every year of their life in exile, and yet there was a hope they were clinging to, a promise of a coming Messiah. And believers, in many ways, have the same hope. Uh, We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He redeemed us from our sins, but we've also been promised a future when Jesus will make all things new again, and creation and its people will know a wholeness. Today, we're obviously going to talk about hope, but before we launch into a dissection of uh, Matthew chapter 1, I have to ask a really important question. It's important particularly in this generation, and that is, why are we listening to Matthew in the first place? I mean, why are we taking what Matthew has to say about anything seriously? It's critical, and it's actually the first thing out of his mouth. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. That's a pretty bold statement. It's saying, I want to tell you the way it happened. And it forces the hearer to say, is this guy full of it? Or is this guy telling the truth? Christians claim the Gospels are historical accounts of the life of Jesus compiled by his apostles. We are going to take, if we're going to take seriously the promises of Jesus, we're going to have to come to terms with the historical reliability of the scriptures. You see, it's these same scriptures that say, love your neighbor, which everyone loves to quote and attribute to Jesus. But at the same time, they proclaim that all of our resources are truly God's and his followers must surrender to what he says to do with them. So Jesus gets right up in your kitchen and in your bank account too. Also in this passage, it is proclaimed with great clarity that Jesus was born of a virgin, miraculously. So if you cannot take for granted, if you cannot believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, if you think that is historically questionable, then what gives you such confidence to believe that Jesus said, love one another? He might have said, take what's yours. Look out for number one. Why are we so willing to believe that Jesus said something like that, but didn't say, unless you're willing to give me everything and follow me, if you'll see the story of the rich young ruler, you can't be my disciple. See, I think we pick and choose what we want to hear sometimes, And as we come to Christmas, it seems that there is a real cultural willingness and something I'm thrilled for. But it would be irresponsible of me as a pastor not to point out that there are times where, like during this season, where we go, oh, I love the Christmas story. This is the way it happened. But at the same time go, well, I'm not sure I can trust Matthew when he's talking about how I should live my life in relationship to the opposite sex. Or how Matthew comments about what Jesus said about a variety of things. I think we all have to come to terms with some of these realities. This gospel account about the birth of Jesus says that he was miraculously born of a virgin. There's a theological reason for this divine act, namely that Jesus had to be perfect. He had to be holy and eternally valuable in order to be exchanged or substituted for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. What we see is if we don't embrace Matthew's declaration that the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, that there's no confidence in the other aspects of Christ's mission. We cannot have confidence in what Jesus has done or said because all that comes from the same text 
that declares that he was born of a virgin. This speaks to our text subject too, namely that the source of all genuine hope comes from God. The source of all truth and power. We cannot have hope that is founded on falsity. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. Real hope, the hope that you're going to get a vacation in three weeks, that I'm going to get some more time off in three weeks, is rooted in reality. It's rooted in facts. It's rooted in a calendar that says you get time off. It's rooted in a work contract that guarantees you certain numbers of holidays each week. Your hope, that sense of freedom, that sense of realness, comes from things that are legitimate. I would say it like this, and again, this is my definition, so forgive me if this seems a bit presumptuous for me to present this this way, but hope is certainty based on capacity and credibility. Hope is certainty based on capacity and credibility. In the Gospels, or at least in the, in the book of Romans, we are told that God works that we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The scriptures declare that God is good, God is sovereign, he is the king, he is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. He can do what he wants when he wants to. And so you and I may rest because he is both trustworthy and capable, because he is both capable and credible. Our Advent theme, our first one is hope. And our text will point to two aspects, these particular two aspects of God that are the basis for our hope. The first of two thoughts for you this morning is this. Our hope, our hope hinges on the glorious providence of God. Any sense that you or I have about a future hope, an eternal hope, any sense that you and I have about an immediate, a more immediate hope that all things would work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Any sense that we want to have that the future is secure for our good, it is built in one facet upon the providence of God. It is one of the foundational realities that any sort of certainty can be uh, proposed upon. Let me read the scriptures again, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing out of his mouth is, this was a miraculous thing. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The story of Jesus' birth begins with the continual intervention of God into human affairs. The prominence of deism, particularly in Western culture, it's a life perspective that is akin to the clockmaker has made it hard for people to actually believe that God will intervene in your life. What do I mean by the deistic clockmaker? This is the philosophical view of God, where God has created the world and he sort of wound it up and now he's going to step back and he's going to watch the world sort of tick off and never intervene into time. 
This view was the view of uh, American patriot Thomas Jefferson. So much was he committed to the inability or desire uh, of God to not intervene in human history that he rewrote the Bible. Sorry, you University of Virginia people. As to say that there were no miracles. It's called the Jeffersonian Bible. It extracts God from the intervening character that the scriptures testify that he has. The supreme being, according to Matthew 1, is doing the following. Mary is born of the Holy Spirit's conception. That would be the definition of divine intervention. The angel of the Lord appears to Joseph to keep him from divorcing Mary. And as we'll see, Matthew will reference Old Testament prophecy to demonstrate that God has had a hand in the history of Israel. He will quote from Isaiah 7.14. He says, this is how we know that the prophet has said. And in Isaiah 7.14, it reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see all throughout the scriptures, not a passive God, not a God who sets back to watch how he's wound things up, but a God who intervenes according to his will and his desire to bring about and superintend the events of our lives. God intervened in human history to disrupt the natural course of of events and again make his agenda superintended for our benefit. This is an important theme when it comes to our personal hope. We cannot know that an outcome is certain unless the person who makes the claim to a future condition actually has the capacity to bring about that reality. And God demonstrated throughout the history of Israel that he was directing their steps, guiding their history, and all of it for their good and him to be seen or glorified. Now, the purpose of this section in Matthew actually isn't the birth of Jesus, but instead the lineage of Jesus. For the Jewish audience who would have been the recipients of Matthew's gospel, it would have been significant that Jesus were part of the line of David, which is why you have both the mention of of Joseph being from the line of David, because this was the prophecy. The Messiah would come from David's family. But you also have in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, a, a direct descendant of Jesus Uh, would have also been his mother. I mean, in the book of Luke, forgive me, in the book of Luke, you can see that Jesus' mom was also a descendant of David. All of this would have been important to Jews so that they could have faith and hope that Jesus was the promised Christ. He would have had to have had the capacity to be so. As we know, his dual nature, being both fully human and fully divine, is what made him capable of, of providing a substitute for our sins, someone who could be exchanged for us. It's only possible, and hope is only possible, where we are certain based on somebody's capacity and their credibility. The Old Testament, in many places, and one of the passages that we've encouraged you to read on your bulletin this week is Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. This is what the prophet Micah said, but you... O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient day. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Even this prophecy speaks to the power of God, the majesty of God. See, our confidence that God can do these things, everything from bringing forth a child by virtue of his intervention, his conceiving a child in Mary's womb, all of these things are rooted in a confidence that he is God. I have never had a problem with people said that, you know, I mean, at least in a, in a general relational sense, people that said they, they, they don't believe in God. I understand when people have a hard time conceiving of the divine because it, they can't sense necessarily him with their physical senses all of the time or for some, any of the time. But there's a big difference between saying God doesn't exist and God exists, but he can't do anything. See, that I don't understand. Because if he exists, it would seem to imply that he has the power to do whatever he would want to do. And so I, I, I understand the struggle. I understand the worry that comes in life when you think, is God actually going to get involved in this? But our hope is built on something real. That he not only is powerful, but he is willing to and has throughout all of Scripture and all of history intervened. And all of this to help us know and rest, particularly in difficult times. Midway through my 10-year saga uh, to finish my Ph.D., I had to do a summer as an, as an intern at Florida State University in Tallahassee. I, I had to spend the summer um, being the teaching assistant and then teaching a course on intercultural communications, which I mentioned last week. I am a, both a Florida State University graduate as of two weeks from now and a West Virginia University graduate. Uh, both of them won in football yesterday too, so I'm happy. Um, I talk so much West Virginia smack that some of my friends are now fond of saying that I got my Ph.D. from Florida State, but I get my B.S. from West Virginia. So... Of all of the faculty I could have gotten from, from Florida State, and you got to understand, I, I love all of my professors at Florida State, but not a lot of them, I would say that's probably an understatement, are uh, believers in Jesus, wholehearted followers of Christ. And so when I had to go for the summer and work for somebody, there's a sense in which you hope you get somebody good and who's actually going to be really kind to you. And I had the most amazing thing because, you know, it's about halfway through this 10-year uh, process and, and I'm getting tired and it just seems like it's forever away and things just are, it's a struggle. It was just a battle. And when I found out I got Professor Dr. Uh, Felicia Jordan, I just had to smile from ear to ear because um, she and I began to talk via text and, and email and I discovered some things about Dr. Jordan that were pretty great. One is that she's a really strong believer in Jesus. And then I found out the most wonderful thing. She graduated from West Virginia University. <laughs> and she married a football player from WVU. So I was in love with this lady right away. 
And then I discovered what was an amazing thing, that she and I actually lived in the same dorm at the same time in 1985. We didn't know each other. And I think to myself, this is like a divine intervention. You could have said that this was a chance encounter, but what are the odds that I'm going to find the one born-again evangelical communications professor who went to West Virginia University, married one of the football players who I would worship, and on top of that, we lived at the same dorm at the same time. And all I can tell you is what I emailed her, which is this was really the jolt I needed to continue to press on, that God was intervening to encourage me to do so. And this is what our hope hinges on, the glorious providence of God. He is not only able, but he's willing and desirous to intervene to remind us that we can have hope. The second thought for today is this, our hope hinges on the gracious promise of God. We'll continue in the passage, beginning with verse 21 in Matthew 1. She will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, for any who would ever come to the text of the Christmas narratives and say, well, she wasn't really a virgin, you've got to understand, Matthew reinforces this thought by saying, he knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. That is a very gentle way of saying they did not have anti-sexual relationship until they were married. See, it was important to Matthew, it was critical to Matthew that we understand that, that the, the promise of the virgin giving birth was not only something that was being fulfilled, but was something that was genuinely true, hence all the detail. Once again, we return to the trustworthiness of God's word. Matthew references the prophecies from Isaiah, and again, throughout this week, you'll be directed to devotional readings that include passages from today's message and text but Matthew says here in other places that these, these took place, quote, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is the essence of what we need to know in order to have hope. We, we need to know somebody has the capacity to bring about something that they want to happen. But we also need to know that they're good or they're trustworthy. I mean, what good is it to have somebody tell, make a promise to you if their promise is of no value whatsoever? You say, what does that mean? Wait till you have a teenager. Then you'll discover that they will tell you they will clean their room and they have no intention of cleaning their room at all. They will tell you, I will be home on time and I got news for you. They have no intention of getting home on time. So after a while, if you're dealing with a rebellious teenager, what you'll end up with is the inability to trust their word. On the other hand, when you look at God and his promises, the prophets are being fulfilled. Matthew is saying you can trust the promises of God. In Isaiah chapter 40, another one of your passages for this week, verse 8 of Isaiah 40 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young, that are with young. In this passage from the prophet Isaiah, we see the beauty of the Messiah, Jesus, and his mission. He will come in power, but also tend to his sheep gently. This is the promise rooted in the word of God. Other things in creation might fade like flowers or wither like grass. But not the word of God. It will remain forever. The promises are not only trustworthy, but they are eternal in nature and they will be remembered forever. This is how rock solid the scriptures are and how foundational they are to our hope. A hope a certainty that is based on capacity and credibility. Real hope requires that God's promises be reliable. And only if the scriptures are true can we know for sure if Jesus was gentle with sinners as he's depicted in the New Testament. Oh, I'm sure people would like to have the thought that Jesus Christ from Nazareth 2,000 years ago walked around and was really kind with sinful people. That's a very fine notion But if we didn't have the New Testament to tell us that that was actually factual, we would have no confidence whatsoever that it was true. The Scriptures say with clarity in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is the depiction of the Messiah. One who is gentle and if you're feeling discouraged and down today, he's not going to give you the hammer and say, snap out of it. Man up. Woman up. Tough it out. He's going to say, I'm with you. I've come to you. I've intervened for you. My promises are true. Believe me. Matthew, the gospel writer, in his 12th chapter, again uses this same prophecy in Isaiah 42. It's the prophecy in a set of prophecies in Isaiah 40 through 55 that are called the servant songs. And Matthew believes that this particular one in Isaiah 42 is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes he gives and makes this connection of the nonviolent, gentle Savior, but yet ultimately victorious King, when he's demonstrating in the narrative of Matthew 12 Jesus' willingness to ignore the legalistic requirements of an extra-biblical set of laws created by the religious hypocrites of his day. And Jesus was willing to do the most gracious thing that a person could think of. He was willing to do a physical healing on the Sabbath. The religious self-righteous of his day were saying, but we're not supposed to do any work 
on the Sabbath. Well, two things are true about this. One is man is not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, but Jesus was God in the flesh, and so he wasn't violating any law anyway. But the bigger principle involved here is that Jesus was saying this is the move and worship of God. This is the work of God. This is what God is doing. He is bringing healing. And these people were outraged with him. And he said, forget about it. Who needs you? I'm going to heal this guy. I care more about him than I do about your sense of right and wrong. Extra biblical as it is. And then Matthew comes in and references Isaiah. And he says, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We hope. We hope because we have a Savior who does not snuff out smoldering wicks. My wife laughs because I'm a candle rescuer. You'd think we were poor like by any standard at all because I will not throw out a candle until every drop of wax is missing from the bottom of it. And so sometimes you know how your candle will like grow up on the sides and then the wick's like all down there by itself and it kind of dies out. And then people will take the thing and just trash it. Not me. I just want to tell you that makes me feel really righteous. What I do is microwave the thing until all of the wax melts and then I rebirth this candle. And then we take it all the way down from there. See, I think that's compassionate. I think that's very Christ-like, as a matter of fact. Um, You see, Jesus is saying that there's this wick, and it's kind of like dying. It's like, ah, you know, it's it's like smoldering, and it's about to go out. And the way super-duper, uber, self-righteous religious people, what they do is they go, catch on fire, and then they just basically snuff it out by virtue of their harshness. Jesus is said to, by his grace and gentleness, fan that bad boy into flame. This is the Savior that we have. It is the promise of this rest that enables us to pursue through difficulty and endure suffering. It is the promise that Jesus works all things together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose that empowers us to not cease to be faithful to him during difficult times. We can endure the insults of others, perhaps the marginalization at the hands of those who control your particular culture, because Jesus has promised reward and justice and ultimate victory, and his faithful promises are what brings hope to both Jew and Gentile, any who would follow Christ. In two weeks, Carolyn and I We'll fly to Florida to participate in the Florida State University commencement exercises. Hence, I promise that this will be the last use of my decade-long academic journey as a sermon illustration. So enjoy it, will you please? When you embark upon something that takes that long, I'll tell you there are many times when you want to give up. And one of the things that I did regularly to continue on was to visualize the day that's coming up in two weeks for me. 
there were times where I would be staring over boxes of research notes and going, and thinking to myself, I am not anywhere near finishing this thing. And, oh, I do not want to. And I would close my eyes and I would imagine myself in this flowing doctoral robe with my fluffy new doctoral hat on top of me. And I would think about my mom and my dad sitting there watching me, 80 years old, both of them, and thinking it only took 80 years for him to do something. No, in their case, 50. But I'm saying, you know, them, the pride they would have experienced watching. I, I thought of my wife thinking, wow, it wasn't a complete waste of all that money. He actually finished this race. I would think of these things and I would go, okay, we are way too invested to quit right now. And I would find inspiration to carry on. This is why we celebrate Christmas. In the same way, it is the promise fulfilled. It is a something that is supposed to remind us of our future hope. A commencement is the end of one thing and the beginning of another. For me to make it, I had to visualize, think about this graduation that was waiting in the future, and it gave me strength to hope. And it gave me peace to continue on. It was a motivator when I was losing focus. We celebrate Christmas every year to remind ourselves of the great providence of God in intervening in human history and his capacity to intervene in our day-to-day lives, and his desire to do so. We can have hope that all things work together for the good because God is both capable of intervening and overseeing, but also trustworthy and good all the time. And his promises are given to you and to me to know, to read, to meditate upon, to focus on, to come to church, to come to community group, to come to Bible studies, to go wherever you got to go to hear the promises of God remind you that you can have hope. It's also why we celebrate communion every week here at PRISM, to remind ourselves of the intervening sacrifice that Jesus, the Messiah, made on our behalf. The Holy One, born of a virgin and unstained by human sin, died in our place to save us from the just punishment for our sins. And we do as he commanded. We celebrate this supper supper as often as possible, doing so in remembrance of him, the one who has made the gracious promise to providentially intervene for our benefit. Let's pray to him this morning. Our great God and King, you came to us in humility to demonstrate to us how your kingdom was going to be advanced in this world, that the city of God was going to be about the movement of servants leading through sacrifice and not through power mongers who would rule and and push. It all starts, though, with us believing and knowing that you are not simply a, a myth, but you are somebody who is real, that Matthew's testimony of your resurrection is legit as his testimony of your birth by virtue of the Holy Spirit's intervention. Jesus, we would pray that today we would honor you. Our prayer would be that we would honor you by being able to trust and hope. I have brothers and sisters here who are 
discouraged and sad because they're facing circumstances that they fear will never end. And I pray that they would know not only that eternally will they end when they enjoy complete and total rest in your presence, but that they would also know that you are sovereignly intervening in this moment to bring about something good now. Help them to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.